Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And we have a special guest live from Bolton, Dirk the Dice. Hello. Thank you for having me on. I was going to put my white suit and fedora on to match <laughs> Matt, but it's in the wash, so I'm sorry about that. It's a great honour for me to be here because I've watched this show since the days you were in the shed. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> Wait, you've been watching us. <laughs> I'm surprised with the amount of grime on the windows in the shed. You managed to see anything. <laughs> but yes, we have some unfortunate news as well that Matt is sadly unable to join us because he is afflicted with COVID at present. He's really not a well man at the moment. So obviously we'll share any news with you as it comes up. The latest we've heard from him, it sounds like he's on the road to recovery. So. Fingers crossed for a speedy return for Matt. Yeah, I mean, he's had both his jabs and he's been taking precautions, but sadly still uh, badly struck down with it. Yeah, we send him our best wishes. And this episode, we're loading up our Tommy guns and investigating the role of gangsters in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that criminal stuff, however, what is going on? Well, there's still time to get yourself a copy of The Blasphemous Tome, Issue 8. This is the fanzine that we publish alongside the podcast, and this issue features a new scenario from the hand of Mr. Scott Dorwood. I am inviting you all to take a trip on the night bus out to Bromley North. It's a scenario that takes place on London Transport, and pretty horrific, but it's not as horrific as travelling on the actual night bus can be. <sighs> and we've also recently reissued the Blasphemous Tome Issue 1. The PDFs of four issues are now available to backers and everyone who backs us at the $3 level and above before the end of the year can purchase print-on-demand copies of issue one and issue seven just for the cost of printing and postage. And to remind you, issue one has got a scenario written by all three of us. In fact, one of the only two times all three of us have collaborated on a single scenario and it's called The Thing from the Shed. Is that right? I think it's got the thing from the shed. I think it's right. Anyway, it involves horrible things in the shed. And then issue seven has Matt Scenario the Blue, which takes you deep sea diving into terror. And Scott, you're going to be participating in a reading, a Christmas reading, I believe, on our Discord server. Yes, that's right. So last year, as our listeners might remember, we did a reading on the Discord server of A Christmas Carol, and that was such a success that we've decided to follow it up. I say we, Mike Percival Maxwell's organising the whole thing. And we've got a full cast together now to do a reading of The Canterville Ghost. And that will be going out over three days, not consecutive days, because of availability. We've got to take a little break in between. But the three episodes will be going out on Monday the 13th, Tuesday the 14th and Thursday the 16th of December. And assuming everything goes smoothly, we'll do what we did last year, record each one and then put them out as special episodes of the podcast feed. And over on the podcast Spectre in the Fog, they've been doing a playthrough of one of my old scenarios called We Will Remember Them, which featured in, uh, was it Europe Ablaze, Scott? It was, yes. And this is run by our friend Zuki 
also known as Robin. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I think this is the first time that he's done an actual play recording. Oh, fantastic. That I know of. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I didn't realise it was Robin running it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a fantastic GM. He sure is. Yeah, he does a great job. So uh, that's well worth a listen. And speaking of actual plays, there are a couple that I've been on recently that have just started new arcs. On Grizzly Peaks Radio, we've been playing these classic old White Dwarf Call of Cthulhu scenarios, and we've moved on to Graham Davis's classic Ghost Jackal Kill, which is a weird little thing that Andy Goodman has modified significantly and made even weirder. And in addition to that, the Flotsman Jetsam campaign that I've been running for How We Rolled has moved on to the second scenario now, Inheritance, written by Matthew Dawkins. And we've expanded the cast. We have a new cast member now. I'm hoping for the rest of the campaign, but certainly at least for this scenario. And we're very honoured to have Adrian Tchaikovsky joining us. That's been a lot of fun. And the first episodes of that are out now. Now, our guest presenter today, Dirk the Dice, is best known for the Grognard Files podcast. Dirk, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Grognard Files, we've been going for about six years now and we've got 50 episodes, although there's about 80 odd podcasts because we have a strange numbering system. And what we've been doing is we went into a deep freeze at the end of the 80s and stopped playing role-playing games and uh, we started up again. And we started to reflect on how we used to play in the 80s and uh, started playing again. And we talk about uh, some of the games that we're playing and how it compares to how we played them in the 80s. And by accident, we've created a bit of a community around it. So we've got Mm. the Grog Squad who play games with us and also contribute to the uh, podcast. But I have to say it's probably a nostalgia-based podcast, but um, a nostalgia that looks forward. Nostalgia. <laughs> Very good. Better than neuralgia. <laughs> well, we have a bit of that as well. But, yeah. yeah, I was pleased to attend the Grogmeet convention only like a couple of weeks back. We met in Manchester and we've been doing that for the past five years. As I say, there's a community built up around the podcast and it's an opportunity for us to get together and play some of those old games. And a bit like Scott's been doing on the Grizzly Peaks podcast, revisiting some of those things that are in White Dwarf because everything comes back to White Dwarf. Oh, yes. I think so. Our younger listeners might not remember that White Dwarf used to be much more than just a games workshop organ and it covered a lot more than just Warhammer. It used to publish stuff for AD&D, Traveller, Call of Cthulhu and well, all sorts of other stuff. And it very much served a purpose as an analogue internet connective tissue between all of the different communities and it bound us together because mm. us up in Bolton Plain weren't aware that there were other people in the country plain. So having White Dwarf there was a sign of life beyond Bolton. And now on to our main topic, gangsters in Call of Cthulhu. Well, gangsters play a huge role in Call of Cthulhu, particularly classic era Call of Cthulhu, because, well, 1920s. When you think of 1920s, you think of gangsters. But there's a hell of a lot more that you can pull on from gangsters and organised crime in general for games in, well, any era. So we're going to dig into all sorts of different aspects of that. Before we do so, however, let's just pin down what exactly we mean by gangsters. Yeah, I mean, gangsters come in all shapes and sizes, really. Mm. The immediate stereotype is the godfather, right? Yeah. Kind of Italian-based mafia, 
that kind of face of it would be the one that springs to mind. But I mean, has every culture got an equivalent to gangsters? I suppose it's interesting that you mention Italy because Italy doesn't really have, even though the mafia and organised crime is part of their everyday life and part of their politics, they don't produce cultural artefacts that reflect the mafia. Mm. And for very good reason, they just don't like talking about it. It's interesting that I think the idea of the uh, Italian-American gangster was uh, developed in the 20th century, I think, through films. Yeah. And the myth of the gangster and the, this myth of the, the mafia emerged from a 20th century popular culture, really, rather than being based on something that is necessarily real. It's more of a myth. And I think it's quite a postmodern thing as well in that... From what I've read, real gangsters since The Godfather, and particularly since The Sopranos, have adopted a lot of the stuff that's been in media since then, and that's then informed real organised crime. So the two kind of feed back in on each other, which is just fucking weird, really. Yeah, and I think early on, so early Hollywood was bankrolled by organised crime Mm. up in LA and they helped to shape these myths, so putting pressures on studios. So, for example, some of the early films, such as Little Caesar, obviously is a composite of Al Capone, but they weren't allowed to mention Capone. Even in The Godfather, they're not allowed to mention Costa Nostra because the organised criminals lent on the scriptwriters at that time to kind of protect their secrets but as you say since then they've kind of adopted some of that myth in how they present themselves because PR is part of organised crime. It's interesting that their initial reaction against The Godfather was what was it the the Italian American Anti-Defamation League or something like that they created this society that basically protested the stereotyping of Italian Americans as gangsters and criminals and I think a lot of that came out of the mafia basically trying to protect themselves to go from there to basically embracing it all is yeah as I said <laughs> strange it's ironic that you say that a lot of the real life gangster culture perhaps derives from the films and the TV because that's something we very much see portrayed in The Sopranos is their constant quoting of The Godfather and playing up to those stereotypes in The Godfather. Yeah, and uh, The Sopranos is very much a commentary on the role of organised crime. They even reflect that, don't they? There's uh, a few episodes that deal with that idea of defaming and it being an ethnic stereotype and Tony Mm. responding to that and particularly uh, Camilla responding to that. But at the same time, even in the classic 1920s era, it isn't just Italian-Americans in the the US setting who are the organised criminals there. I mean, I, I guess you have... some of the triads over there, particularly on the West Coast, you have Jewish gangsters as well. So you have people like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and so on. It very much seems to be something that comes out of perhaps marginalised communities, a way of, well, I guess, first of all, ensuring survival and financial well-being and then grows into something else. Yeah, very much so, and I've recently been playing Gangbusters, which is the TSR game from 1982, And that plays heavily into this idea of uh, the different ethnic 
backgrounds of the characters and how that plays against each other in Lakefront City, which is in Chicago with the numbers filed off. Yeah, it very much plays into this idea that there are different ethnic groups with uh, the Irish, for example, and see that in New oh, York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the West Side is very much... Um, Irish gangs, isn't it? And uh, there's some great films about Irish uh, Irish gangsters. I recommend State of Grace if you've not seen that from the 90s. Um, but yeah, mm. yeah, it's not confined to the Italian Americans. Well, and also I think perhaps for Call of Cthulhu, a lot of them are based in Boston as well. So it's a very sort of Massachusetts, New England thing. Yeah, and as you said, Scott, in the outset, the 1920s gives us prohibition in America. Yeah, banning anything is great, isn't it? If you're a criminal organization because that's gold to you as we see with the you know the drug culture at the moment well it's not just that i mean it is like you say absolutely anything so as i've mentioned on the podcast before i was born and grew up in hong kong and i remember hearing news stories of the triads there and a lot of what they made their money out of at the time was gambling because gambling was illegal in hong kong at the time i don't know if it still is i assume it still is there was one legal outlet for gambling which was the jockey club people could bet on horse racing but apart from that having card games, mahjong games, dice games or whatever, where you could play them but you couldn't gamble on them, doing so was illegal. But the triads obviously used to organise a lot of that stuff and that was a huge form of revenue to them. And I mean, similarly, prostitution and people trafficking and so on, which I think is where a lot of organised crime makes their money now, along with drugs. So it's basically, yeah, like you say, anything that people want that is prohibited by law automatically leads into organised crime. Or even when it's not things that people want, even people just running regular legitimate businesses then get protection money, you know, basically extortion, to be able to run their businesses. So they're not necessarily themselves doing anything illegal, but it's just like, you know, you need to pay us, otherwise something bad's going to happen. Yeah. Coming back to what I was saying about the gangs having mythic qualities, and you can see that... You, know, you mentioned the triads, but in Japan, the Yakuza, they adopt a very different role in Japanese society. They, you know, The films around uh, Yakuza and the fiction around Yakuza kind of openly acknowledge that they're important members of society. And compared with other organised crime groups, they're relatively new and they grew out of the popularity or the status grew out of the American occupation of Japan. And they were seen as like Robin Hood figures. So they were seen as uh, people who could come to the help of society and they, they had a valuable role in maintaining, you know, as underdogs trying to fight against oppression. When we're talking about what we mean by gangsters, it's clear that it means very different things depending on the period and the culture that we're looking at. And sometimes it can mean quite specifically different things like you're just talking about with the Yakuza and so on. And we also sort of said that what we see on the screen in fiction isn't necessarily a very accurate portrayal of real life. So how do we think that really differs between what we see on the screen and what goes on in real life? I mean, that's difficult to tell because mm. I, I doubt any of the three of us have got much in the way of direct experience of organised crime. And so all we've got to work on is second-hand accounts, whether those are from the news, documentaries, non-fiction books, or from fiction. And even where you've got the non-fiction accounts, as you pointed out, it's very mythologised. Yeah, as gamers, 
I think what we probably need to tap into is that fictionalized version of gangster and, and organized crime because real crime is horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible thing and probably a bit boring as well. So yeah. what we're interested in as gamers and for Call of Cthulhu is to draw upon those fictional narratives and tropes and see if we can incorporate them within our, our game. It's all right to bring in some elements of reality because that can obviously enhance your game. But I think for the purposes of gaming, I think the fictional depiction and representation of gangsters is probably healthier to focus on. Yeah. For example, as I mentioned, modern gangsters, I mean, a lot of the money there comes from people trafficking. And that's that's the kind of thing that if it turned up in the game, unless it was handled with incredible precision and care, I would find immensely off-putting. <laughs> There's a Powered by the Apocalypse game called Cartel, and it uh, resides in narcos fiction, and because uh, it's been popularised recently through television programmes, and mm-hmm. I must recommend a really good book, The Power of the Dog by uh, Don Winslow, which is a really good organised crime fiction. Go out and check it out. But I look at Cartel and I, f- I feel that it's too close to the horrendous lives that people have to tolerate in Central America for it to be entertaining and for me to explore that in a game. I mean, that seems uh, strange, doesn't it? But I think it needs to be sublimated in some way. And I think when crime appears in gaming, it's healthier if it has that kind of distance. In um, D&D, for example, one of the published adventures, I think it's Dragon Heist, that's set in water deep and deals with organised crime. And, and, and you know, of course, you've got Blades in the Dark, which is um, got mechanics and the whole premise of it is built on a fantasy society driven by organised crime. I think it's healthier to kind of look in those kind of fictionalised accounts of uh, crime than in your games than dwelling too much on the reality of it. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I feel similar. Right now I'm re-watching The Sopranos and we just finished season two, I think. And you're watching Tony Soprano, a mob boss, and I think there has to be an appeal of the character to get you to like him. But at the same time, you know, he's a cold-hearted killer, he's really brutal and very much a dislikable character. But on the screen, you've got to have that charisma to make that attractive. And I think that's what we see in most gangster films. Yeah, There's an appeal of the bad guy and maybe in real life you know there are aspects of those people that if you met them socially well people do compartmentalize their lives and they might be really horrible in some settings and very personable in others I don't know but certainly I think in terms of the fiction in terms of the gaming yeah I think there is that divide and and I mean if we just think about Call of Cthulhu characters in general you know when we're not playing gangsters Most Mm. Call of Cthulhu players are, at times, quite happy to do things in real life we wouldn't do. So they will not off the cuff just kill someone, but actually sometimes, yeah, they will. And and certainly in D&D, set aside monsters, we're quite happy killing other humans often in D&D if they're seen as baddies. Yeah. So our moral compass in games is often because it's abstracted it's a game it's it is very different to real life yeah i think that's part of the appeal for me of the gangster genre i enjoy the dramatic tension of the threat of sudden 
uncontrolled violence and that is part of the appeal of it isn't it that's part of the dramatic tension that you experience in the that this kind of outburst of, of violence and you get that in games but i don't want to see violence in real life i, I just want it in, in that in that space mm. at the same time there's always the problem with gangster media, which sort of feeds into the mythologization that it sugarcoats or whitewashes it or makes people's reaction to the real thing perhaps a bit softer or more accepting than it might otherwise be. Obviously, that that can drift through into the games. Where you've got things like The Sopranos, it does at least have the fact that it's a, a fictional character and The Godfather as well. These are fictional characters. But... Where I've become uncomfortable in the past really is where you've had films that are based on, or books that are based on real gangsters, but fictionalizing them and mythologizing them further. The film about the craze from the 1990s sort of skirted that, but the worst example I ever saw was there was a film, I think from about 2004, called Charlie, which was about Charlie Richardson, the head of the Richardson gang, contemporaries of the craze in East London, that I think he acted as a consultant on. And it just falls short of being a fucking hagiography of him. It's just nauseating. Mm. I think that there is a very fine line to be walked there, particularly when dealing with real crimes, but even the portrayal of fictional ones that you don't necessarily want to create an apology for them or, or worse, glamorise them. Yeah, and I think there's something deeper about that as well because it's interesting that that one came from the 90s because the 90s was a great explosion of gangster films, wasn't mm. it? It started with Goodfellas, ended with The Sopranos, and within there you have Tarantino and the indie movie boom, and obviously with Tarantino it brought audiences for eastern cinema and extreme eastern cinema and you got that growth reflecting on it i think there's something about that period of time it's almost commentary on male power and in the 90s you see a, an explosion of that with things like loaded and that kind of that assertion of uh, masculinity i think you're right that in some films there is a risk that it is too heavy going on that sometimes you know we're going to look at films aren't we? you have to acknowledge the fact that some of these gangster films are deeply misogynistic and it's problematic in some ways but dirk did you not hear the news this week only this week i think it was a government minister stood up yeah. and was talking <laughs> about young men are getting into crime this was him speaking young men are getting into crime because all the male role models like Doctor Who and so on are now being portrayed by women. Horror. Yeah. So maybe Tony <laughs> Soprano should be replaced by a woman. Is that Tony with an eye? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, young men weren't doing crime in the 90s in the kind of no. misogynistic nonsense films, you know, that, oh, Jesus Christ. I just could not believe that somebody <laughs> stood up and said those words this week. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I think if I were to rant about what I considered to be the reasons for that, that would fill up an entire episode. <laughs> so, so it's not. I resisted commenting on it on social media because I tried to keep my sort of Twitter comments away from politics, but it, it's just boiled up and had to come out yeah. somewhere. <laughs> so, Dirk, you were just uh, mentioning the 90s boom. I mean, could you throw a couple of exemplars at us of uh, what you would consider to be the the great gangster movies. I think you've got to say that Goodfellas is 
a superb gangster movie because it, it takes the idea of the myth generated by Coppola in the 70s and puts it in the street and uh, seeing the growth of Ray Lolita's character and the glamour disintegrating as you know you see the horrific tension that he has to deal with that's what I find fascinating about gangster dramas because it, it you know it's a classic archetype isn't it of ascension and then decline uh, because you know you have to move hell and high water to try and get to a position of power and then it hanging on to it is terrifying because violence is around every corner and i think uh, goodfellas is great because it's got some great lines in it because that, that's the other thing isn't it that good gangster films have to have great patois and things that you can quote and that's a great one and you've got to say as well that quentin tarantino with reservoir dogs was really impactful i remember seeing that on the first day that it came to the uk in a packed cinema in the corner house in manchester and spontaneously the audience stood up at the end and cheered because <laughs> I don't think we'd ever quite experienced anything quite like it. You know, that kind of exuberance of the language and, and the interplay between the characters. And again, great quotable things. And I'm, I'm sure that if you're playing a gangster in a role-playing game in Call of Cthulhu, you at some point will reach out to something from either Goodfellas or from Reservoir Dogs. I also recommend a more recent one because I mentioned about how Italy hasn't got a great record of dealing with its own relationship with the mafia. There's a programme based on the uh, book, I've forgotten his name, Robert Sylvia, is it? Book of Gomorrah? Yeah. Which is set in uh, Naples. Fantastic series co-produced with Italian and uh, UK television. It's extremely good it, just dealing with the street life of these uh, gangsters, these day-to-day -day gangsters and the, the power struggle between them. I highly recommend that. And if you've ever been to Naples, it captures the spirit of that frenetic city really well. So I recommend that. So that's my three examples, Goodfellas, Reservoir Dogs and Gomorrah. Well, what about you, Scott? Well, if we're looking at stuff that is going to be potentially inspirational for Call of Cthulhu, the obvious one from more modern times, I guess, would be Boardwalk Empire, the HBO series from a few years back, which has got, I'd say, more stuff that you can steal for Call of Cthulhu than any other television programme ever made, just because of the period, the fact that it starts off in 1920 with the inception of Prohibition and then just follows that through the 1920s and the birth of the FBI and the rise of various gangs and is largely rooted in fact but brings in a few fictional characters. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely rich inspiration. And there's other stuff set around that time, but from earlier, which will obviously again be very, very inspirational. Dirk already mentioned Little Caesar, but I mean, there was a whole slew of films that Jimmy Cagney starred in, and most of which are quite well known, like Scarface, White Heat, uh, The Public Enemy, Angels with Dirty Faces. The one that I would recommend for Call of Cthulhu is one of the, I guess, lesser-known ones, which is a film called The Roaring Twenties, which starred Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. Again, like Boardwalk Empire, it follows that 
cycle that started off from 1920. And it's about how a group of wartime buddies go then into bootlegging and then organised crime. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm surprised that one isn't better known because I think it's it's probably one of the best gangster films in that period. I say that period. It was made in 1939, so it was looking back, but it, it was closer to the time. The other one I'd recommend, if you're looking at London gangsters, there was a TV program that came out again, I think, in 2004, starring Mark Strong called The Long Firm, which was a fictionalised story about a gangster running a nightclub in Soho in the early 1960s, and very much inspired by the Cray Twins and the Richardson Gang and so on, but again fictionalised. And it really brings that era to life. It brings the seediness and both the glamour and the horror of organised crime to life, and is just a fantastic character study. I remember watching that and I immediately ripped the whole thing off for a convention scenario that I ran for some time afterwards. Never wrote up, but a, a scenario called The Last Days of the Empire, which I really should dust off and do something with someday. Can I just support that, Scott, and recommend if you haven't read the original novel of uh, The Long Firm by G.A. Garner, it is superb. Oh, yes. It's really, really well written and, as you say, a great character study of a boss. And very much the uh, 60s in the UK is our 20s in America, isn't it? It has yeah. got that mythic status for crime and gangsters. Yeah, and it's got the same kind of horrible mythologization and moral ambiguity where the gangsters were glamorized they were seen i'd say possibly even more so in the u.s that they rubbed shoulders with politicians captains of industry and especially media stars and were seen as being almost media stars in their own right which when you think about it too much is really fucking horrible mm. how about you paul what recommendations would you have yeah, I mean, Boardwalk Empire was one that definitely sprang to mind for me. And in modern times, a couple of shows that I've talked about on the podcast before, The Wire, it still has that whole kind of gang culture, the selling drugs on the streets of Baltimore and the untouchable bosses and so on that are so hard to actually bring to court. It also occurs to me, here, if we go back to Down Dark Trails, Jesse James and that sort of gang, it's, it's quite a small mm. gang. It's quite a small organisation. But it still has that high level of paranoia in it. So I think that's an integral aspect of any of these things. You've got this small group of characters and there's just this constant paranoia is one of them, you know, in modern days, is one of them wearing a wire? Are they turning information to the feds or whatever? Have they sold you out to another gang? That, to me, is, is kind of an, an integral aspect. And we see that very much in um, like the assassination of Jesse James with Brad Pitt and his decline. And I say also that if you were looking at organised crime in Down Darker Trails, you definitely want to take inspiration from Deadwood mm. because the character of Al Swearingen is pretty much a mob boss or very close to being a mob boss, just in a sort of Western setting. Now let's look at gangsters as protagonists. Well, what is it that makes gangsters so appealing as player characters? To me, I think one of the things when you're getting a group of not individual investigators together, but when you want to get a gang together, mm -hmm. the word is literally there, a gang. 
you want an investigator organization, that's a, a good way of tying people together, all part of some sort of organization that perhaps research into the occult or for whatever reason, they're sort of bound together. We've got various organizations and we did an episode about those a few episodes back. But being part of an organized crime gang, that sets you apart from society. It's essentially, it's a secret society, isn't it? Mm. It's a secret society. They've got to keep their dealing secret. They can't go to the police. They're isolated from the normal procedures that one might go to when crime happens. Either they, they can't go to it because they know that it will get them in trouble directly or indirectly because if they go to the police, that's going to get back to other people in their organisation and they're going to get in trouble for that, which is great for a game because when bad yeah. things happen, there is always that temptation to say, we're just going to call the police, we're not going to have anything to do with this. And whilst as players, we have to sort of think, well, no, it's a game, I am going to get involved, my accountant is going to get involved in, in this murder scene. As organised crime people, you're much more likely to say, okay, well, let's just put the body in a bag and take it down the canal and get rid of it. And it just makes it so much easier to do a lot of the things in the game, I think. As you said before as well, a lot of investigators tend to act like criminals anyway. So you have characters now who have the skills and the background that allow them to do the things that the players probably want to do anyway, like breaking and entering, stealing artifacts, killing people, setting fire to houses, playing around with explosives, all the usual. Instead of it being a case of, okay, well, my librarian, well, is going to go out and buy some dynamite and then try to blow up the old castle. And yeah, how well is that going to go? Instead, you have uh, Jimmy the Fish, uh, who laid explosives during the war, has brought that knowledge into the mob, has blown up a, a, a few rivals over the years. Yeah, of course, he's got a decent demolition skill. Sometimes people get berated for playing like that as a non-gangster sort of thing. Hmm. The thing is, yes, if you behaved like that in real life, it would be criminal and very reprehensible. But in Call of Cthulhu, as just a normal person, you're doing those things for, to use that cliche, the greater good. The greater good. As a player, you know there is something worse out there and it is beholden upon you to actually take action even if it means breaking the law and doing stuff that we wouldn't normally do in the everyday so that's just part of the, the fiction really yeah and all good role-playing games occupy that space don't they of being on the edge of things i think you're right paul to say that it's like a secret society and it gives you permission to do some of these things as protagonists in a role-playing game also the archetype scenarios of heist as scott says you know these are the stocking trade of playing role-playing games isn't it you know, doing a hit mm. disposing of a body trying to recover something these are all criminal activities aren't they on, on, on the face of it what what strikes me about a call of cthulhu why i think it works for this kind of adventure is that it needs that vulnerability because as i said we played the dragon heist you can't really be powerful characters as gangsters because, as we were saying earlier, the dramatic tension is about your vulnerability as a gangster and that the heat is increasing on you. So as a protagonist, you need to reflect that. And Call of Cthulhu doesn't necessarily have a heat mechanic, but I think what I'd be encouraging to do is pushing the luck rolls onto the players so that 
as their luck running out. So are the police going to get on top of them? And that diminishing resource can act like a heat mechanic on mm. players. Yeah, he yeah. likes to run out. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and also, I think another big advantage is because people are so familiar with gangsters and organised crime through media that it's a very easy premise to buy into. It's a very easy mm. archetype to fall into. Similar to when we had the discussion about the appeal of the Wild West, you were arguing, Paul, that one of the big selling points is that you basically say, right, you're a bunch of cowboys, you know, you're on your horses, you're heading off to try to capture an outlaw or something yeah. like that. And people immediately know who their characters are, know what the setting is, know what they're doing. If you've got a 1920s gangster game, it's very similar. People have seen enough films and TV programs that they just know what they're doing yeah they're very much like two-dimensional cardboard cutout characters to start with but at least you've got something to grab hold of and play like from the get-go and like you said Dirk that any of those things you very quickly sort of latch into sort of Goodfellas quotes or Reservoir Dogs quotes it's very much sort of playing to stereotypes and so on but I think that that's a good way into playing a character as you play the character hopefully some of those stereotypes fall away and you you know if it's a one shot maybe not but if it's for a longer game then you develop the character with more sort of subtlety and complexity perhaps depending on the game i think one of the pitfalls with playing gangsters though is is that cutthroat brutality between the characters mm. so I, I wrote a game called dockside dogs which is very much inspired by reservoir dogs and the characters all have a name, Mr. Beige and uh, you know, Mr. Orange or whatever that they are. At the outset, I knew that they might end up killing each other, but some players aren't going to do that because they mm. think they shouldn't as players. They sort of think, I can threaten this guy, but I mustn't actually shoot him, another player, because that will take his character away and that will ruin the game. Mm. It was a one-shot game, and I'd sort of built in a way of sort of dealing with dead characters in that scenario. So at the start of the game, I would sort of say to the players as keeper, you're all playing gangsters. And if you want to pull your gun on somebody and threaten them, that's all part of the game. And indeed, if you want to go the whole hog and actually kill someone, if you feel that's what you really want to do, then that can happen. So just sort of made them all aware of that. But I think in a regular game, people are going to be reluctant to do that. And also... I think this comes into this whole paranoia thing, which I think is so integral in organised crime and gangs and, and that sort of fiction. And we can see that through the sanity mechanic, perhaps. Mm. But I'm not quite sure how, how you would go about emulating that. Any ideas? When we did Wobble Kasuda Cold War, we had that trust mechanic in there where... It was your relationship with the intelligence agency you worked with, and your trust would go up and down depending on how your character behaved, whether they accomplished goals, whether they worked against their country's interests, whether they asked for outlandish things. And I reckon you could just lift that entirely, as it's written in World War Cthulhu Cold War, and use that for an organised crime game. Because fundamentally <laughs> there are an awful lot of similarities between the way intelligence agencies work and the way organized crime works what about in gangbusters uh dirk was there any of that sort of aspect of that in in your playthrough of gangbusters the sort of paranoia and the player versus player kind of action or character versus character 
So what I did for that convention game, it was an old module, Death on the Docks. And at the start of that, I used a part of Fiasco, the game. Mm. I suppose it's based on the Coen Brothers idea of mishaps and the rug being pulled under. It's a story game. I'm not big on story games, but I took out an element of the start of Fiasco, which is to do with the bonds between the different players. It's a very simple dice pool mechanic and you pick from a list the relationship between each of the characters that allowed that to play out in fact most of the fun was the banter between the prohibition agents and the street cops and one of the characters was in a relationship with another character's mother and so that created tension between the different characters. And obviously, when the, uh, the mother rang the office, it was, wasn't sure who should be picking up at that stage, that kind of thing. So just using um, Fiasco as a means of developing those into relationships and giving people to play off. But yeah, as, as I mentioned before, that tension, I think I would turn to the look mechanic, that as a resource to represent the external heat on the players. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'd say that there are a number of possible pitfalls in general, though, with playing gangster games beyond that. One is that organised crime is largely hierarchical, and that's both good and bad in terms of gaming. It's good in that it means you can have easy scenario hooks where your boss tells you to go off and do something, and that sets things in motion. But at the same time, it might mean that there are expected hierarchies within an investigator group within a group of player characters and i sometimes have trouble with that i don't necessarily like the idea of there being one person who's in charge i mean obviously there are all sorts of ways you can make that work particularly with the right group of players but if you get the wrong group of players it becomes insufferable Hmm. Also, obviously, then that plays into the trust and paranoia aspect as well, in that if your characters go off mission, that can be a good thing in terms of you building up tension and paranoia, but it can also leave you in the position at the end where you have to try to come up with some pretext as to why your boss wouldn't just have your characters rubbed out for what they just did. That could be, again, a bit awkward. Mm. I think the way to bypass that hierarchy thing, though, is to give people different roles, isn't it, within the mm. investigator group. So you could have somebody playing the role of the consulari who's uh, advising probably one of the main hitman or something like that. And I like how in the seventh edition it drills it down a little bit more, doesn't it? The occupation of the criminal, it gives you more options. I think in the original it was just a straightforward mm. gangster. Now you've got a choice of what kind of criminal you actually are what is your speciality and so you can kind of dispense with some of that hierarchy by giving people specific roles and where they fit in small gang that you've got and i can imagine gangsters we talked about them perhaps being like secret societies i mean i guess the question is how do they compare with cults there are some very strong similarities they all have like boxes that you can sort of tick and if you tick enough boxes you can sort of say well that's like a cult then yeah and equally if you tick certain boxes it's like organized crime and quite a few of those boxes are probably similar yeah and secret societies and so on so could some organized crime organizations appear like the ones that we're familiar with on films but actually at higher levels be some sort of mythos cult that the street people perhaps don't know anything about they're just selling drugs and stuff to 
you know, on the street corners to send the funding up the chain. They don't know that the guy at the top is like, I don't know, servicing the king in yellow or whatever, you know. I have actually written that scenario. Ah, well, you saved me the time, Scott. <laughs> that is very much the premise of the meat trade from Bobble Cthulhu London, right. which I wrote. I mean, that played around as well with a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily see in gangster media, in that it was set during the Second World War, during the London Blitz. We, we talked a bit before about this mythical age of British gangsters being the 1960s, but it all started in the 1940s when rationing meant that, you know, it was much like the bootleggers in the 1920s in the US, it was a very similar dynamic, mm. that you had black marketeers and spivs who basically worked around rationing. And then this grew into larger and larger organised crime and then became really quite self-sustaining. And yeah, I mean, that's very much what the meat trade plays around with, those early days of these small-time street gangs turning into something bigger, but just with a mythos twist. Maybe the Cost Nostra is a Cthulhu cult, because as I've pointed out to Paul previously, it, I find it interesting that the location of where these great crime organisations have dispersed from is the site of two massive volcanoes. So in Naples, you've got <laughs> Vesuvius and you've got Etna in uh, Sicily. So what is it that they're hiding beneath those uh, volcanoes? <laughs> Maybe all the horrible things that they've done have been in service of placating the volcano gods. <laughs> but probably not. <laughs> but even if the player characters aren't gangsters, that doesn't mean that they can't end up working with gangsters to some extent. That's a dynamic that, for example, we played around with a bit in The Two-Headed Serpent, that I really quite like. And going back to this idea of organised crime being a bit like cults, I find that having gangster allies in games, NPC allies, is almost a bit like player characters who try to work with or make alliances with mythos entities. I mean, some of the more neutral ones like ghouls or make deals with gods and so on. It involves a lot of things like Faustian pacts and having to turn mm. a blind eye to some of the more horrible things they're doing and gives you plenty of opportunities if you're the keeper to just throw in horrible things and sort of say, right, you know, this is what you're allied with. Yes, all right, they might help you in this horrible situation, but don't forget what they really are and that can make for quite a an interesting uncomfortable dynamic yeah and i think as keeper it lets you bring in another aspect of the world which is a more realistic aspect of the world mm. and just bringing in more mythos things well it's more mythos things but you know bringing that the gangster thing as you say it's something you can perhaps make a deal with a dangerous deal but it adds more dimensions to your game really it's kind of an ever-present thing wherever you are whatever period you're in there's going to be people like that that you can probably turn to or that turn to you and importantly will always have agendas of their own that may yeah. not coincide with those of the player characters they'll help you now but at some point they <laughs> may call upon you for a favor absolutely and i think one of the things that a gangster npc can do is go after the player's credit rating so Ooh. the more favors you call upon the more your credit rating diminishes and more it transfers to the gangster and <laughs> there's an indebtedness that you've got to repay. 
Yeah, I think particularly if the character is suffering from some sort of fallout in terms of sanity, because some of the fallouts of sanity loss can lead to things like addiction and things that sort of assuage the the, sort of the characters, what am I sort of trying to say? They might turn to sort of like gambling or, or drugs or whatever. And obviously through that channel, any sort of gangster is going to be able to sort of drain away their yeah. credit rating, much as I've just seen in the latest season of The Sopranos when the guy who runs the sports store <laughs> forces his way almost into a couple of gambling games because he knows Tony from sort of uh, from way back. Yeah, that does not turn out well for him. Yeah, and I love that moment when Tony just turns to him and says, this is what I do. Yeah. Knew what you were signing up for. You knew what the bargain was. This is what I do. It's just business. Takes him apart. Just takes him apart. Yeah. It's funny how we we almost celebrate that, you know, right now. We're almost <laughs> celebrating that, sort of saying, isn't that cool? So somehow it kind of is to us. Yeah, which is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that neatly takes us on to the idea of gangsters as antagonists. Yeah, I mean, as we've said, they make great antagonists because they're, they're a resource that we can draw upon as player characters, perhaps. Hmm. But it's a dangerous resource to draw on. You know, you made reference to perhaps making deals with ghouls, Scott. Yeah. There are some mythos entities, you know, as a handful, maybe you, you know, might be able to strike up some sort of deal with some deep ones or something like that, potentially. Because a lot of these mythos entities are very intelligent. So there is the potential you might be able to sort of make some sort of deal with some of them. But obviously, those deals are dangerous things. And it's kind of the same with gangsters. You know, you kind of have to mm. assume that once you get in their debt, they are going to remember that they're a utility that you can draw on. But only when you're desperate i can probably say this uh, because uh, it's more difficult for you to mention this but i love the new york chapter in two-headed serpent and when we did the run-through of that the gangster element of that really played into the general paranoia that the player characters had about their situation and being part of the caduceus organization and the gang was trying to infiltrate them trying to get to the player characters and one of the player characters did have criminal connections he was a bootlegger who had a bond with one of the other player characters who was an alcoholic and so he was kind of a professor a, a botany professor it was a long story but he <laughs> was trying to get a line of liquor to this academic to keep him going and of course yeah then the gang started leaning more and more on them and I think you asked the question, in a world where there's terrifying monsters, can gangsters have any threat to players? But if you ask my players, mm. they found those gangsters more intimidating than anything else that they encountered during that campaign. Oh, wow. Because there was a moment in one of the speakeasies where one of the characters was being shaken down by Cassell and uh, the gun was on the table to neutralise the negotiation, but I went into full Brooklyn mode and uh, <laughs> yeah, he was trembling at the end of it. So, yeah, those characters that are presented in that New York chapter are great. And, you know, you've got the full range of from the boss to the underboss and it's great to have that interplay and how they want to understand what's going on with this organisation that's on their doorstep. Yeah, that's real good fun with that. We can quite happily talk about how good that is because Matt wrote that bit. So, Oh, there you go then. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we should give a nod to Matt here. 
Yeah, I think that's an important aspect, that one of the things that makes gangsters such good antagonists in that respect is the fact that it's a threat the investigators, or more importantly, the players, can understand. Mm. It's both something that operates at a human level, but it's also much larger. They do represent a larger conspiracy. They may have hooks into local politics and be very well connected in high society and with financial institutions and stuff like that have this veneer of respectability, but at the same time, it is a, a sort of human face that is on all this, that is operating in its immediate form on the same level as the investigators. Just to underline that, and that's a, that's a really good point. So, for example, in Two-Headed Serpent, the professor was threatened with compromising material getting to his superiors at the uh, university if he didn't cooperate with what the gangsters mm -hmm. wanted to do so you can use that influence and as you say it's an understandable conspiracy and you know the fingers are everywhere and probably more down to earth and relatable than some other conspiracies mm. Yeah, while you might get some cosmic chill at the concept of the court of Azathoth and everything that represents, having this hard, steely-eyed man sitting there with the gun on the table in front of you, spelling out terms, feels like more of an existential threat. Well, and also it could be more subtle, can't it? Because yeah. in the fiction, in the films, you know, sometimes you've crossed them and you think you've got away with it, and then as the regular person comes home and finds... I don't know, the most mundane level, like their car tires slashed or, you know, yeah. things that could have happened coincidentally, but these subtle things kind of build up. Somebody gets knocked over in the street or things like that, and it seems like it's just a, an accident, but, you know, it was done by the mob. Yeah, I think those things are more subtle, whereas the supernatural things can be frightening. But And messages as well, so dead canaries or horses' heads <laughs> in people's beds, yeah. Mm. Or just old friends and business colleagues just suddenly not wanting to have anything to do with you because you're toxic. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's quite scary. Yeah. At the same time, I guess there are some potential pitfalls with having gangsters as antagonists in games. And one of the big ones that occurred to me, I haven't seen any games go wrong with this yet, but it's, it's always on my mind, which is maybe not so much with the Mafia, but a lot of organised crime groups, as we mentioned before, come out of marginalised communities. They come out of immigrant communities, people who are basically trying to carve out a niche for themselves in society through any means they can. And as a result, it can perhaps be easy to fall into unfortunate stereotypes and I don't think that's something that's changed since the 1920s, because nowadays you see it very much with, I'd say, portrayals of Eastern European gangsters in media. Mm. And black gangsters as well. Oh, yeah, yes. I think we have to acknowledge as well as the lazy stereotypes of uh, racial and ethnic stereotypes. There's also, um, as I mentioned earlier, very often gangster narratives are about male power and demonstration mm. male power and there's an inevitability if you're not careful of marginalizing women and women's roles yes. in your game if you lean too heavily into it well you'll be glad to know in the new version of dockside dogs that is out imminently i've gone back because like when i first wrote it yeah, i just had like six blokes yeah because that was how the film was so yeah. that was how the characters were because i just kind of mirrored that 
but I've gone back and reworked it with a, a more diverse cast. So you could end up playing Dockside Dogs with an all-female crew, and I've just done it so you choose your own gender for the characters, but done each one. So you can be Mr. Red playing with a choice of photographs. It doesn't really affect your background very much, but uh, so hopefully that I've tried to address that in my own little way. Yes, yeah, a tricky one. It's something that I regret a little bit with Blackwater Creek, because we we did pre-gens mm. that went into the Keeper screen that were all gangsters. And the Blackwater Creek ones, yeah, I've got five male pre-gens and one female one there. In retrospect, that just feels wrong. I mean, it may more accurately represent the demographics of organised crime at the time, but in terms of mm -hmm. inclusivity of the play table, yeah, it, it feels weird to me in retrospect, and I wouldn't do that now. Mm. In the core rules, for example, there's an uh, occupation type of a gun mob. Yeah. It's a gendered stereotype that appears in the rules. I mean, I'm, I'm not, well, I guess I am making an excuse, <laughs> but I don't mean it that way. But looking back, we were working on that 10 years ago, and I think we would address that differently now. Mm. Well, we would address that differently now. And also, that was a hangover from the earlier editions as well, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty mm. sure that was a profession going all the way back to at least second edition, which is where I started. Again, that's not an excuse, but I think it's a reason. Hmm. I think it's reflecting the stereotypes inherent in the source material, isn't it? Yeah. I think, and that's the point we're making, isn't it? That if you're drawing on these sources, you have to have an awareness that it's built in, it's baked into it. Yeah, I think that's something that's happened very much in the last five to ten years in general, in gaming and media in general. For a long time, we took these these archetypes and these stereotypes that came out of the early 20th century and we just ran with them and perhaps developed them slightly in different ways. But I think there hasn't been as comprehensive a reassessment of them until recent years. There's a lot of stuff that now, in the light of the reassessment that's gone on for the last five or ten years, now seems really obvious that five or ten years ago, just because the cultural and historical baggage did not. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has backed us at any stage. And we have a, well, a fair number of new people to thank by name. Yep, and starting off with a thanks to Takashi. And thank you very much to Ian Stead. And thanks to Jack Scott. And thank you to Lincoln Masters. And thanks to Craig Wallerstein. Thank you, Adam Keeper. Very appropriate name there. Yes. <laughs> and thanks to Andrew Turnercheck. And thank you very much to Jonah Knight. Thanks to Simon Ward. And thank you to Todd Grantham. And thanks to Oliver Steins Gunderson. Thank you very much, Andy Layton. Thanks to ICN. And thank you to David Gross. And thanks to Greg Osborne. Thank you very much to Andrew Hudson. And thanks to Andrew Cairns. And thank you to Nathan Hughes. Thank you to Tobias Wayland. And thank you, Jim Calabrese. Thanks to Rick Payne. And thank you finally to V. Potter. As ever, 
If we have completely mangled any of your names, please do let us know, and we will try to make up for our mistakes. Well, and uh, thanks to Dirk the Dice for joining us for this episode. Thank you very much, Dirk. That was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. But were these concrete boots really necessary? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because we don't want you going anywhere, because we want you to stay right where you are for the next episode. Speaking of the next episode, we will follow up our discussion of gangsters with talking about a gangster film that embodies absolutely nothing of what we've just discussed. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing if not on topic. (laughs) Well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. And it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And adios, amigos, from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.